Today on Hello Humanities, Dave Tao is back. He and I are going to talk about our first month in at teaching, how it's going, and the future of education, what it looks like, what we're noticing, and how we can help support our students in a education and school system that really focuses on competition rather than collaboration and solidarity. So stick around. Come on back. Me and Dave talking again. Welcome back to Hello Humanities. I am here in the classroom studio with Dave Tao. Dave, we're in the same space. It's I know. Nice this, to is, share it. this is nice. I feel like it's much better than over computer. Mm. Uh, and it's better than being downstairs. So. Right. For listeners at home, I used to be downstairs, Dave. I mean, I've been downstairs, Dave, for a long time. But I was downstairs both like geographically. My That's room right. was below. So I would hear them moving the desks. And it sounded like, well, what do you think it sounded like? I, don't know. I would imagine thunder. We didn't really... I don't know how much your moving around in your room really did the same. Yeah, I don't think so. I think there was no one other than the rats uh, <laughs> and like the subterranean troglodytes. Don't tell people yeah, that that's true. there's rats. Uh, there's no rats. Just, just like, you know, in like the mafiosi, like, hey, you're dirty rat. That's oh, the only kind. Okay. Other kind, those are the, where the rats. There's definitely rats. Oh, boy, um, are there. Oh, my God. Um, uh, you sounded like Wookiees. For the record, it sounded like, ah, that's the sound of a table. Being that's a good across. Thank you. I've been practicing. So we are about, I think, maybe even exactly one month into this new Terralinda school year. And I thought it would be cool for us to come together and have a little conversation about how it's going, but also maybe some larger questions about um, school, teaching, just sort of what, what the temperature check is, the vibe check, if you will. Vibe check. Of of just, I guess, teaching and education and, and being in the classroom again after yeah. now we've we've got, um, I believe, every single student at Terra Linda High School who was impacted as students here by the pandemic have all gone on to graduate or moved on past high school. And so these are all students who are coming, have come to Terra Linda since then. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how that's different. But And I'm wondering, actually, like if there's... I mean, I know that middle school teachers and, of course, elementary school teachers also had, like, wild experiences during COVID. But I wonder if the fact that there is no, like, single Tara Linda student experience of mm -hmm. COVID learning, that they came from school contexts where there was a wide range of experiences and reactions. So there is no, like, single way to define it that means that its, its effects are maybe felt less. Yeah, that, that's very possible. I certainly think that just being in a shared space with these students this year, and I guess that's a good transition into talking about it, students just feel more able to be in this space together. Um, I think there was some reticence when we came back, understandably so. It just feels to me, and, and you can speak to your experience, but it feels to me like these students are used to being in a classroom, are used to the expectation of digging into their learning and, um, just going through lessons and understanding the sort of ups and downs and rhythms of the school day and the school class than I think that we had for a couple of years. I think you're right. I think for me, at least, I think that's uh, maybe like highlighted or even exaggerated by the fact that I was out of the classroom. I was out of one classroom for, sure. for the entire last year. So for me, I'm noticing a lot the kind of celebration, if that's the right word, a little bit of like joyfulness mm. or ebullience. Ooh. Like, yeah, thank you. Uh, that's for you, Josh, uh, that there's this connection that they are able to do 
in the classroom mm -hmm. that I very much missed while I was in Norway. Fun fact, I was in Norway. Uh, and that I really missed during those last months of COVID teaching before I left. Yeah. That it didn't feel... We definitely appreciated being together, but we didn't actually celebrate it mm -hmm. in a way as regularly and consistently as they are now. I mean, I just came from a class where the students were great talking together and they weren't all always 100% there. They were drifting in and out because that's life. But there was, I think, a, a buoyancy, a lightness to the teaching that is is nice. It's getting hard because we're one month in, mm -hmm. but it's still there. Well, I, I think part of that lightness also is that um, not to praise you too much, but I think it's being in your classroom, my friend, is 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 adds its own ebullience, if you will. Not bullion. Yeah. But, <laughs> or blue uh, bays. Oh, it's it's yeah. yeah. We're, 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 we've already we've 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 dived down that. <laughs> we've dug yes. and dived. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, no, I don't I, know. I don't know if that's true, but I, I I will say I think that students respond really well to a classroom that allows them to learn yeah. from each other really well. So I found probably more so this year than in my maybe the last five years mm. that students are really happy to talk with and through each other to have academic conversations. I know that we here have talked a lot about student discourse and that seems to be actually not a problem. Students are pretty happy to engage in discourse. Do you, do you get a sense that that is something that all the teachers that you've come across, worked with, or just in the, in the years of teaching, do you feel like that is a change in terms of how teachers approach it? I know that you, as a teacher, the values and um, sort of importance of student-centered discourse, conversations, creating a community in your classroom, which all those things that you do, do you get a sense that there are more teachers um, coming into the profession or who are changing within the profession toward that type of thing? Do you, do you feel like that's the case? Not to be rude, but actually I want you to answer that question first because I, we're at a school where 20%, almost 20% of the teachers are new and mm. I didn't actually get to see that transition. So it feels almost like I'm at a new school site in many ways. Yeah. And not to, not to turn that spotlight onto you, but do you as someone who is now a senior teacher, mm. both in the department and on campus. And of age, the whites in my beard. I mean, but they're, they're highlights is what they oh, are, thank you. Uh, of course. Uh, do you see that change? I do. Um, and I think it isn't just the new teachers. I think new teachers are coming in with that um, pedagogy and sort of curricular background and spirit of focusing the classroom and the classroom conversations and the classroom discussions and the activities and lessons themselves as very sort of student centered. And I don't say that in a not teaching student centered. I feel like sometimes there is a, is a sort of um, dismissiveness that comes out of that. Like, oh, you're a student centered teacher. That means mm -hmm. you don't do anything. Yeah. And uh, I certainly don't mean that. I think that teachers are coming in and they are creating spaces in communities in their classrooms where students feel empowered, they feel safe, they feel heard, um, and they feel confident. And I think a lot of students are stepping into that. If I think about when I started here at TL in 2015, 16, I think that it was much harder for, uh, for students to feel confident and comfortable in a lot of spaces at this school. And I think that's changed a lot. And I also want to say it isn't just the new teachers. Mm -hmm. I think we, you and I have spoken a lot about how 
um, even some of our other senior teachers like you and me, they are, they're pivoting toward this idea that the best way to be in community with students and with families and with the school at large is to focus on making their classrooms uh, listen to, recognize, acknowledge, and hold up students' experiences. And I think that is that that is so wonderful. It's so wonderful to, to see um, teachers really, really framing these experiences and these years. Like mm -hmm. these years are very important for these students, um, and we could talk about that later. But to me, I think it's really it's 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 quite beautiful to watch students feeling themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a way that is. Is, is more educationally focused. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just, they feel, it's so obvious that these students feel more yeah. confident. They feel more connected. Um, they feel empowered. They feel like they are listened to by mm -hmm. their teachers. They feel respected yeah. by their teachers. And that is not something that I certainly felt yeah. when I was a student in high school. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think I, I both want to yes and, and yes but. And so I'm gonna have to pick my battles. Um, I think I'm gonna yes but, because why not be the contrarian? I think, you know, I'm thinking about my own classroom where I obviously center student discourse and I try to emphasize regularly, almost daily, that they learn much more from and through each other than they will from me, than they possibly could from me. I'm entertaining and informative, but not that entertaining. Mm. But I also know that the way that those conversations we've talked before about how they end up being exclusionary, right? That when, when things are based in conversation, we actually need to intentionally and consciously maintain those communities or they, they delve into, um, you know, either exclusionary practices or, um, uh, everyone is able to participate, but not in a, in a way that is like culturally affirming mm -hmm. or acknowledging experiences or even acknowledging complexity and diversity of experiences within a community. Yeah. And so that I think is, that's my yes. And is that like, absolutely. I think students are so much more able to be joyful with each other and to learn from and with each other. Um, and I think the thing that I'm trying to push in my own classroom is for there to be a, a kind of an unflexible principle of, of inclusion, of plurality. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's not just for when I'm checking off a Socratic seminar, but that we are always including everyone at our table in our conversation. Mm. Um, some of that, of course, has to do with like, you know, weaknesses in my own individual teaching that we're all always trying to get better at, but it's also like, you know, finger in the wind, like, what do I notice? Yeah, and I, I think I appreciate the complexity uh, that you're bringing to that because it's true, there's this way in which you get, if you get the sort of big picture, everything is fine, things are better, um, then it doesn't offer opportunities and room for growth. And I think you're absolutely right. I think, I think that is certainly not the case for all students. Yeah. And as much as we and teachers can try to create that, it isn't always the case. And yeah, so at least not all the time. Definitely not. And yeah. I think making sure to, to keep that, um, that I wanted to say part of the electorate in this case, which future electorate. I kind of like part electorate. Of the, I like constituency, constituency is what I use you. a lot. Yeah. I, I think that part of the constituency needs to be heard and recognized and valued, yeah. um, but not as an ends of themselves, as, as like humans with experiences yeah. that are also sharing space and uh, deserve to be heard and listened to and 
um, and be represented as yeah. part of the conversation and part of the content. Yeah. Yeah, there's this, I'm going to talk about Norway. There's this thing in Norway that you, we find it in schools. We also find it in workplaces where, you know, a lot of it is meeting driven, right? That it is these conversations are very slow and somewhat inefficient in terms of time, but very democratic. And the idea is that like everyone who's affected by a decision needs to be involved in that conversation. Uh, so it's not just the people who always raise their hand and have a lot to say, but it's literally everyone. And if we have, if we've had a meeting and not everyone has gotten a chance to participate and respond and reflect and interact, then it doesn't count. Mm. And I kind of like that. They're like, if you're at a table of four students and not everyone has gotten a chance to participate or participate in a way that is meaningful and useful, then like, it doesn't count. Like if not everyone feels at home, then it's not a home. How is it that that is, uh, noted and, and, and recognized how like is there a buzzer that someone presses <laughs> i have not been heard yeah i'm just curious as to what that looks like um i guess on the ground yeah so one i'd have to practice my norwegian to read those that contract law and that norms and a little bit better um but i get the idea that it is again a part of doing business mm -hmm. right so you know i think that that's the, at least from what I've seen, that's the way that faculty meetings go. That's the way that my best teacher workshops went. I found that when teacher workshops, even when they wanted it to be me presenting, when it turned into me presenting, that was some of the least personally and professionally mm. satisfying workshops because it was both undemocratic and and un-me, but also un-Norwegian mm. uh, in that it was transmission of information as opposed to talking through a process. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm curious as to what, what you think the ways that you are in the classroom now after a year off, after time away from being a teacher, also just in a different space, in a different um, classroom experience in a different country. Do you feel like now in the classroom you're doing things differently to some extent or you're coming in, you've come in with a different set of uh not values or principles but is there a different set of questions you have or is there a different lens that you're trying to think about your students or your practices or the, the um the curriculum itself that is a good question i mean it's a good question anyways because it's your question but it's also a good question because it's one that i'm like still struggling with so i can I will try to start to answer it, but maybe we'll follow up in another couple guests and I'll, I'll see where I am now. But I think honestly, it has to do with a little bit of humility, right? I spend a lot of time previously, like designing the class, like here's the class and students are coming into it. And I'm actually like kind of showing up with much less of a preconceived notion about what the class is and trying to respond a little bit more organically to who the kids are and what they need. and. So while I have thought a lot and I have some texts selected, I probably thought more about this class than I have before. I've spent less time planning far ahead than I have ever. Now I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to like expose that the class is underplanned. Like I know what I'm doing almost to a minimum basis, but it's that I'm not imposing my will on the class. I'm trying to keep it much more organically. And, you know, I'm always laboring. Fun fact, I teach AP English Lang. And so I'm always laboring under this like massive test that hundreds of thousands of students take. But I'm almost in some way saying like, we know, I know we're going to get there. Let's just dance for a little bit. Yeah. And 
I find that that moment of, of dance is, I don't know, I, I am having much more fun teaching than I definitely did a year and a half ago because I'm not so hung up on what the class means or must be or mm. according to College Board is and just like shimmying around. I think the dance metaphor is wonderful. It's great. It's great. Um, because it feels, I feel like, it's such a, actually a really great way to frame this idea of so much of learning a discipline is, is the improvisation and the, the things you can do once you kind of know the steps, right? And so you're kind of in this early feeling it out period um, where you're responding and you're in some ways you're letting the students lead mm -hmm. and eventually they're going to feel confident in the leading to be able to then take it upon themselves to use the skills that you've been supporting them in and, and teaching them, but also that they have, they have grabbed and learned themselves. Yeah, that's right. That's and I, I love the idea of, of the practice makes the performance and the practice is the everyday classroom conversations and skills. And um, it also creates, the ability for them to create their own pace and to create the the ways in which you respond to them so that each class because you teach multiple mm -hmm. ap lang classes and so each class can come to these places in different times or in different ways or with different perspectives different insights different skills and if everyone understands what the goal is but doesn't use the track yeah it's you're able to, if, if the finish line is up here yeah. and the road is open, you get to that finish line, however it is. Maybe you want to zigzag, maybe you want to swoop and curve, maybe you want to drive in a straight line. But, but I like the idea that like, you're the, you're the student driver yeah. as our students all hopefully pass their student driving test. Fingers crossed y'all. Um, but I, I love that. I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I very much, um, I need to, think do that more too well it, admittedly i think that you do i think that your class is a good example of one that is driven by discourse and conversation because as you and i've talked about like qual what i think quality history education is is not just you know war of 1812 facts and figures um mostly war of 1812 yeah come on um, obviously don't deny that that I is your favorite not, thing it is my of all the wars they'll learn they'll learn. all of them oh jeez. okay so it's not that it's just that, but it's also like interacting with history in a way that kind of tell, highlights the stories in different ways to make it make sense mm. from where we are now. Yeah. And I think that that's something that, well, yes, there's reading. Yes, there's articles. Yes, there's sources. In your class, it's a lot of like, what does this mean to us as livers of the legacy of yeah. history now? Yeah. And so I give you credit for that. I think about <laughs> I my students, of course. Uh, I also think about how I want my students to be as writers, right? Students always show up and their goal for the class is I want to be a better writer. I totally get that. Writing is something that no one really likes and people want to improve on. Um, but I tell them, I want them to be aware of their style as writing. Like there's no just, there's no thing as writing good or writing well or writing proficiently or professionally. It's, are we aware of our style and how can we vary our, vary our tone, vary our sentence structure, vary our language in a way that fits the moment, just like not every you know, dance step is good for 
for every song. Sometimes you got to sway. If you're listening to some some Bill Callahan, it's just a sway. Oh, That's I all love you a need. Good sway and uh-huh. Bill Callahan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I appreciate that uh, that phrase, um, and it feels also very relevant to the work that you're doing in Lang, which is this. You know, these students are trying to embody the the, the speaker, the writer, um, and thinking about where they're coming from, what the context of that experience mm-hmm. is where like who they're speaking to or writing to um i mean we were just talking about this this idea that like both of our um both of our courses frames this idea of trying to really get into the space of understanding how these stories and experiences and secondary sources and um but also like individual experiences how how it is and why it is and in what ways the people who experienced those things and how they were experiencing the, the world around them thought about that moment and how they expressed it through writing or through speaking. And I'm just really struck by the idea that, um, and we were talking about it in, in Apush actually yesterday, but there's this just way I think that sometimes we forget that history is about choices and that those choices are made by humans and it's not this sort of inevitable um, progress toward a particular point in the future that ultimately it is about kind of fits and starts and zigs and zags and, and forwards and backwards. And, and I just think that sometimes, I think the classes that I have been in, history classes, that have been the most boring have been this sort of slow, solid climb toward the top. And that isn't to like say that uh, that this changes any sort of status around the United States. That's not the point. The point is that like, that's a boring story and it's also not true. And I just, what I really am always interested in uh, with, with, with history and U.S. history specifically is that, is that like every, every choice and every person's experience can be framed in, in, in every possible way. And I don't know, like that, that to me is what is so empowering about history is that like, we're actually making it like these, you know, the people, the kids in our classrooms are going to be able to have a vote. And like I said this to my senior, my, my juniors last year who are now seniors, like you will be able to vote in this next election. Like that's a big deal because you're able to like use your political power to say something, whatever that thing is, Mm -hmm. It's yours. It's your say, and that's such a beautiful um, way to connect these sort of old dead people and these old concepts with like real on the ground experiences. Yeah, um, yeah. I tend to think that that's actually like quite cool. I was going to say radical, but I don't actually think it's radical. I just think that it is kind of the way it is. I mean, I don't know about your high school experience, but I had a very lovely uh, history teacher who I thought did a really wonderful job teaching me information, but felt that history was a series of events happening, right? It was just this inevitable momentum forward. And in many ways, I think that a lot of students of our age oftentimes feel powerless with present conditions because history is something that we are carried along in, that there is no need to do anything. Mm. And I think that one helpful lesson from climate movement in general, 
um, and labor movement as well. But I think the climate movement, the youth climate movement now in particular, is that those things are not inevitable. They are the result of of work on the ground. I mean, that's the lesson of, I think, justice movements, right? Is that like to, to surrender yourselves to history basically means to surrender yourself to people in power. And it means that things can't be changed. And I don't mean that to sound like a radical, like that's not it. That's the lesson of history. So anyways, I'm excited that you're excited that I'm excited. So I want to turn the conversation to a larger question that we've been talking a lot about, and I think it fits into this conversation quite well. And that is, what is school for? What is the point of it? Because I think that COVID kind of put an extra spotlight upon this. I mean, this is something we've been talking about for 10 years, but I'm really interested in thinking about um, and hearing your idea of what it is that you think that school is for, like, what is its purpose? Because I think that if you can't answer that as a society and a community, then, then it's going to be difficult to get onto the same page or into any, any forward motion about what, what it is that school can do for your students, for your neighbors, for your family, for your own children. Yes. So I have a big question. No, it is, it is, it is. I mean, it's a, yeah. I have a preamble for it, but then of course I have an answer. So um, I, I don't actually, as a preamble, I don't think that we actually have an answer to this question, like to, to the problem that you identified. I think that if you were to ask different constituencies, different groups, different um, advocates within education, you would probably get a variety of answers. And I know that there is a historical answer to what school is for and what skills it was designed to leave people and what conditions it was supposed to direct people towards. But I think that that has largely faded. And I think that we as a school community, we as a state, definitely like as a country, have a lot of soul searching to do around what school is for and what it's aiming to accomplish. One of the things I really appreciated in Norway is I asked people pretty much regularly across the country, like what they thought the purpose of Norwegian education was. And they kind of always gave me the same answer, Mm. which was uh, to prepare people to build a life for themselves. So to kind of this kind of uh, like practical function to prepare people for higher study if they wanted that and to build a nation. Right. So these are kind of three explicit purposes. And the nice thing is whether I went like to the far north or whether I went to indigenous communities where they kind of also would talk about uh, a sense of national identity there, whether I was like in the metropole, like that was a pretty clear articulation. And I don't think that's because of any uh, clever effort on behalf of the Ministry of Education. I just think that they have had this conversation and the recent legacy of it is still sticking with them. I personally think the purpose of school is to teach us to live with each other, um, that there is a community aspect. Now, of course, like that is my both kind of political and pedagogical biases that I'm really interested in how people live together. But I think when I think about American schools, American classrooms, American school communities, that's that's the thing. It is about like building a, a sense of family. Now that of course is kind of academic and vocational and psychological as well. But when I think about all the things we have to do, that's kind of it is, it's a little bit nation building, which I think is why 
education and schooling has been so politicized right now is I think that the political powers recognize that there are very few things that every American does. Every American pays taxes. Well, most Americans pay taxes. If you don't, you know who you are. Um, but everyone goes to school. And like that is a shared experience. And, and so I think for that reason, like it's, it's where that unity comes from. So that is, I think, my very short and maybe overly long preamble answer. I think that's a great answer. I guess my next question would be, because I, I love I love the both context of, of what you saw and heard from in, in Norway, but also sort of what you think it, it is. What do you think then that looks like? How does that manifest in the classroom? What what is then the what is the way that we learn to live together in the classroom? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, hmm. That's tough. I mean, I think that it is one that keeps a lot, a lot of things that we've been talking about, which is like student discourse and home and community, some of the watchwords of this conversation. But I also think it is to maybe make things less competitive, to build in some guardrails around earnings and academics and um, vocational training and things like that. It is trying to make school not be this high stakes problem that uh, if, if students don't do well on their 11th grade English class, um, does that mean that they are then not going to get into a great college and then have like some poor prospects for themselves when they get out? And I think that that's like one thing that makes what I think is the purpose of school. Um, so maybe there's a lot of hurdles to it is because there's a lot of like social things that we would have to, I don't know, talk about. But I think that that's the problem is that we're not talking about it. But I want to get back to the question. Like, so I said, I think school is about you know, building a nation, building a community. Alex Robbins, what is school for? I think school is for building solidarity amongst the students of this country and finding ways to make connections across difference. I think I think you mentioned this in your answer, but there's this way of th this competition part of, I think, our society and competition part of um, just kind of the way in which this country works is we're competing against each other. We're trying to get more money. We're trying to get a better job. We're trying to go to more school so we can get a better job, so we can earn more, so we can accumulate more wealth so we can give more to our kid. Like there's this sort of more, more, more competition. And I think that that's bad. I think, I think it's, I think it's bad to become enemies with the people you live with and this adversarial relationship, this competition. I mean, sometimes we see it with our kids, right? Our students, like, there's this idea that we're communicating or communicating, we're um, competing for points, we're competing for grades. Uh, and it's so frustrating because I think some of that comes out of these deep worries. It's fear, man. People are afraid. Kids are afraid that they won't get into a college. Yeah. Kids are afraid that they won't have a good job. Kids are afraid that they won't find someone who loves them. Mm -hmm. uh, kids, are, kids are afraid. And I think fear manifests into frustration, anger, um, sadness, 
and just metastasizes. Yeah. And I think if there was ever a point of school of, as you said, like this shared experience that all Americans have, it is this idea that like we are coming together, whether we want to or not, let's take advantage of the idea that we're sitting across from different people. We, you know, we are in a space with people who have different experiences, different parents, different economic statuses, different legal statuses. Um, and it's just, it's frustrating to see that happen. Um, and to bring in a little a push one more time, uh, today we were talking about mercantilism and I think it's this idea of a mercantilist view of, of success. There can only be so much of it. There's only a finite amount of success. And if I have some, it means you don't, I have to take it from you. And that's crazy yeah. because there is not a finite amount of success at the school, at any school, mm -hmm. everyone can be successful. As you noted, sort of in your answer, like vocational skills, like just solidarity building, like we want the world to not melt. Like these are, that's a success. We all want that to win. be a success. It's a big win. And I just, it, 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 it's very frustrating to feel like, like we're already doing that in our fifth period class. We're already having this like rat race conversation about who is getting the best grade or, or how was my grade compared to this other person? Or why did they get this amount of points and, and I didn't like, what it, we're losing sight of yeah. the fact that like we're in this shared space and that the points don't matter. Yeah. Like they really don't. F uh, full disclosure, points don't matter. I think that wasn't, they really, they really don't. They really can don't I, matter. Can I actually, can I quickly like maybe ask like, why do you think it is that kids think points matter? Um, so I have like a hot take and then I maybe have like the answer. So the hot take is uh, because it's much easier, right? Like, uh, I think the thing with mercantilism is that it really allowed for us to identify who was with us and who was against us, mm. who was like a friend and who was a foe, who mm -hmm. was like a, a, you know, a rival and who was on our team. And I think that it's really easy to sort like things I do from things I don't. I do things that are worth points. I don't do things that are not. And mm. so for students who are overloaded because they're taking seven classes, yep. who are overstressed because... Uh, many of them have to work to support their families or at least like share in responsibilities for kids who are under rested because school starts in the morning and they're at school or away from home until so late at night. Uh, it's it's easy. It's efficient. But I think that the bigger reason is that because that's what they breathe outside, right? Like you grew up in L.A., you breathe smog. You grow up here, you grow up breathing competition. Mm. And it actually takes like, oh my God, that's so it weird. takes time away hiking on a, I don't know, a fjord, for example, to realize that like, you've actually, like what you thought was just uh, the way that you felt was congestion and headache from the rat race. Because uh, it doesn't, it honestly doesn't have to be that way. Um, I mean, there are lots of like brave educators, frankly, doing things with not just standards based grading, but even I would say radical things with like points list grading or not student centered grading, but kind of like portfolio based learning. Like those are things that try to dismantle a little bit of that, like existing incentive structure. Um, but it's hard because like so much of that incentive structure exists outside of my class. And so I often agonize, and this is a, a real thing. It's like, I, if no matter how much I try to challenge or dismantle like 
points grabbing or any kind of harmful practice in my classroom, they may go to a job where points matter, or they may go to another teacher where points matter, or they may live in a house where points matter. And so I'm always really mindful that I come, we come from a position of privilege and that like I get to determine that points don't matter in my classroom. Um, but I guess in my life, there are ways in which points do matter. And yeah. so it's, it's slow. Uh, Robin DG Kelly uh, talks about his freedom dreaming. Like we, we can live in this system and we can like start to imagine a future, like a, a alternative future where, you know, we've gotten away from this points thing. We've gotten away from this competition thing. And so even though we're stuck in the present, we can kind of freedom dream the future. Yeah. I, I love that, um, that recognition and reasoning. Cause it's such a good point. How do you, how do you change, how do you change a system that is always self-affirming? Well, as a history teacher, like, how do you, how do you change a system that's self-affirming? I think, me. I think what you said is this, this idea of like radical, radical reimagining of systems. You, you, you can't, it's very hard to use a system against itself in a in a realistic manner i think a lot of times it's early in the year so we haven't gotten to it yet but a lot of times early on in the year students will be frustrated by the idea that why can't why can't activists use the legal system against itself like why can't why can't the supreme court decide upon uh this decision like that that slavery is wrong when actually it's the opposite, when in, in Dred Scott v. Sanford, it's that, it's that African-Americans will never be citizens and they should never be respected. Like that's what the Supreme Court decided. This idea that when you want to change something, you sue about it, which also feels very American. It, it, it is very American. Um, but just this idea that, that you have to be radical, you have to approach it in different ways. I think the problem with that is that that requires an amount of bravery and as you said, freedom dreaming that we've, we've kind of been conditioned to not think about. We've, we've lost kind of our imagination around that. And uh, I think imagination, and this is a shout out to like, to my wife, cause she always talks about this, like the, the beautiful thing about kids. And I say that about my own child, but also our students um, and your nieces is that they are so imaginative. They're always looking to try to figure something out mm -hmm. or look at different ways to solve a problem or just make something up out of nothing. And that is something that we have a true famine of as, as we get older, because I think of back to this, this point system, like to be imaginative about, about that means to be left behind, right? Oh, you're not living in the real world. Mm -hmm. Um, even these sort of cliches that we've been brought up with, I think they, that poverty of imagination is, 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 is detrimental. And the way to change these systems has to be that radical imagination. Abolitionists imagined a country that had no slavery. Mm -hmm. That was impossible until it wasn't. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that until something happens, you just, there's a way in which you think it'll never be different. And the beauty of radical thinking and abolitionists in all stripes mm -hmm. is that 
radical thinking and moving that Overton window, moving that expectation of what could be. What could be possible, yeah. That is just, that has to all, we need the radicals. We need them. So I think that is dearly, dearly important. Yeah, I, I think I would, I would agree. The challenge for me is that I am, you know, I like to think of myself as being critical and somewhat radical in my thinking, but I'm also like a part of, I mean, I work for the government, right? Like I am. You do. So do I. Yeah. <laughs> you do. Not me. You do. Sarah. I do too. I do too. Uh, yeah. That we we work for this this entity that is the source, and when not the source, the guarantor of so much harm. Mm. And so, you know, in some ways, that's it, it, I. I mean, maybe to get, again, this is an emblem of privilege, but it's just like going back and forth between like, what is, what is the right way to change the system from within a system? And what is the way to, to, to think about it when you are, you know, given pension, able to get paid all those things yeah. by it. So that's what school's for, right? <laughs> Simple answer. Simple answer. Just freedom, dreaming, and imagining futures. Um, but I think that the thing is that you and I have talked about this for years, and we at least have an answer to it that is at least maybe not the same, but somewhat simpatico. Uh, I've talked with my sister-in-law, who's also in education. I've talked to other people in my life who are in education. And I think that we all kind of have different answers because that conversation about what a school's for hasn't been surfaced. And so I think one thing that'd be really good to talk about regularly is what is school for maybe not overall but like what is school for here like what do we think tl is for mm. um i don't know that i want to facilitate that conversation but i definitely want to be in the room i think it'd be awesome to try to create that conversation amongst um current students but also i think former students i agree I think it'd be awesome to to get our former graduates into that space too, to think about that. Cause what, what, what did it represent for you? What was helpful or hurtful or, um, how did, how did it impact or not impact your, mm -hmm. your life? And what are the kids who are in it now? What do they think it's for? I, I think that would be such an important question. And I think it'd be awesome if we were able to have that conversation on here. I mean, to have a couple students, current or former who could come in and, and talk about it. Fill the room. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that, that would be such a, a wonderful opportunity to hear it from them. I mean, we both went to school, um, to, to high school, um, long ago in the late 1990s. And so for us, things have, have changed a lot and being a kid these days, I think that comes with so many more expectations and it's so much more difficult. It's, it's, it's yes. wild, I think. And something that I think sometimes parents forget how difficult it is to be a teenager, to be a kid mm -hmm. these days. It's much, much different. Yes. And I think to me, I try to remind myself of, I would, I, I would not have been able to handle all of these things. That I could barely are. handle it then. Right. I could barely handle the late nineties, <laughs> which, you know, I was a sweet summer child and I just uh, crumbled under that pressure. These, I mean, I, that's why I, I tend to admire students today. I tend to admire all students today, but I tend to admire students who have it rough today even more because the durability, the tenacity, the flexibility, the self, get back to imagination, the self-imagination, like 
if you are presented with a kind of messaging that does not make you feel like you are set up for success, but you can, despite that, like imagine it and create and enact a good future for yourself, make a good future for yourself. Uh, how brave kids, kids today are like way tougher. I definitely feel like so, so, so soft, so sensitive. It's, it's hard not to be. Um, as a high school teacher these days, they're yeah. just the sweetest of, of, of bros. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And non-bros. Yeah. So just to sort of bring this to a close, thank you for having this conversation with me. I, I Thank you for having this conversation with me. Of course. It's, yeah. it's such, a, such a pleasure to, to share a space physically with you, share a school and, yeah. a, and a colleagueship with you. Yeah. It's been nice to be back as a colleague, because we definitely talked while I was gone. I think we talked about talking while I was gone more yes. than we talked. Yes. But um, I mean, it's different when you are afar versus like working together. And it's nice to like be with colleagues again, to like have, have colleagues as opposed to a bus pass. We're happy to have you back. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to our episode today on Hello Humanities. It's so great to have Dave. I know we're going to have more conversations in the future. Another thing, take a look out for an Ask Me Anything where students, parents, community members are going to reach out, hopefully, fingers crossed, with some questions, and Dave and I will try to answer them to the best of our ability. So please send in those questions to arobbins at srcs.org, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll answer them for you on the air. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Peace.